Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. And this week's sponsors, the Stewart Foundation and the Capsonal Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Finsterwald. Well, John, COVID-19 has disrupted education in many forms. One of the many impacts has been to put our state's multi-measure accountability system essentially on pause if not in limbo. And that's a system that was painstakingly put in place over multiple years leading up to where we are today. And just as important, Lewis, the pandemic has eroded the systems of school support by county offices of education in the state that the state envisioned, but you know, it's really never extensively funded. If you like local control and if you like district autonomy, you've got it in spades this year. You know, and this is happening at a time that districts and charter schools are facing the biggest challenge in a generation, how to re-engage students and help them recover learning that's been sent back during the pandemic. And top of that, districts have an unimagined windfall of federal and state funding, $35 billion, and it has to be spent over the next several years. Of course, all that money presents enormous possibilities and potential to introduce reforms that we could only have imagined before. Today, we'll look at the issue of the pandemic's effect on school accountability and how it might change in the future and who parents should turn to for assurance that money will be spent wisely and effectively. To talk about these issues, we're pleased to have with us Heather Huff. She's Executive Director of Policy Analysis for California Education, known as PACE. And one of the many things Heather has been involved in was a report that came out just this week, put together with several dozen education organizations in California. It was called Reimagine and Rebuild, Restarting Schools with Equity at the Center. And the report puts on the table quite a few really innovative ideas for rethinking what should be done when students return to school either this summer or this fall in much larger numbers than is already the case. Thanks for joining us today, Heather. Thank you so much. I'm really proud of what this big group of organizations was able to accomplish together. Well, Heather, give us some idea of what impact the pandemic has had on California's efforts to hold schools accountable for student performance. During the pandemic, all of the normal ways that we thought about school performance and how students were doing, what they were learning, how they were progressing toward outcomes, all of those data sources paused or were eliminated. So things like chronic absenteeism, the way that people and students were in school changed completely. Suspension, of course, stopped being used in the same ways. And our state smarter balance tests, those annual end of year tests, were canceled in 2020, and we've been given a waiver for 2021. So we've had no state-level mechanism for understanding how students were doing. And we didn't replace that during the pandemic with the kinds of information that we might have wanted to know at scale about how students were doing. So we don't have information about how students were engaging with online learning until February, which was almost a year after the shutdown started, We didn't know which schools were even opened or closed or still don't know what proportion of students are engaged in different modes of education. And we didn't have any kind of formative assessments at scale to be able to monitor how kids were learning throughout the pandemic. So we've been able to gather this information 
in particular districts or regions. And so we've been able to cobble together an understanding of the impact of the pandemic on student learning. But we don't know as a whole how kids are doing, and we don't have information about what kinds of variation there is in terms of district or school practice in helping those kids learn. So practically, what does that mean in terms of not having that information? Obviously, individual school districts who are working with those kids, they are having to respond in some fashion and are responding. That's a good point. But what a state-level measurement system enables us to do is monitor how students are doing as a whole and to step in when things aren't happening the way that we believe they should. So if there is an idea that a certain level of outcome is necessary or that certain types of inputs are necessary, like how we've been having conversations about synchronous learning or instructional minutes, then having that kind of data at the state level enables us as a community of researchers, of, uh, of scholars, of uh, system leaders to be able to then point and say, these schools aren't doing right by their kids. These schools need to do something different to make sure that their children have opportunities to learn. Heather, we had a dashboard. We had multiple measures for which California has been given much credit. And we don't have that right now. I guess it will be several years till, in fact, we can reconstruct it. But that was the basis for a system of support for which we would know how or and whom to help. Is that system of support still there that it can then fill in whatever is missing? The system of support was really in its early stages of implementation when the pandemic hit, unfortunately. And it had some glaring weaknesses that I think made it not ready to rise to the challenge of the pandemic. In some research that we had done just prior to the pandemic, we showed that district support was largely offered by their county office of education. But there was really substantial variation in terms of the capacity at the county office to provide the kinds of supports that districts needed. We also identified that the system was under-resourced even at that time, and that much of the support that districts were getting was really narrowly defined and not flexibly oriented toward meeting the kinds of dynamic and changing needs and systemic problems that districts were experiencing that were leading to these longer-term issues. There also was no clear mechanism, even before the pandemic, for intervention if things weren't progressing within the districts. The system was really predicated on this idea of support and opting in and collaboration, but not requirements. So then the pandemic hits and there wasn't a coherent or aggressive statewide approach, which really ended up meaning that the kinds of support that each district was receiving varied very substantially across the state, with some districts having a lot of local support for navigating the extreme complexity and unprecedented challenge of the pandemic, and others feeling like they were really out on an island and trying to navigate all of those decisions by themselves. So now, Heather, you have this this huge crisis of disrupted learning, but with huge amounts of money, particularly steered to low-income districts with large numbers of foster kids and English learners and low-income students. So what's the opportunity? What's the risk here? And what are you worried about? Well, I'll start with what the opportunity is. We know that the pandemic has disrupted student learning. We know that students in California are 
behind where we would expect them to be in a normal year. We also know that the impact is disproportionately being borne by low-income students, Black and Latinx students, students learning English, and so on. So what do we want the districts to do with that money? And what is the state's role in making sure that the money is well spent? That is the million-dollar question. I think that there are two ways to think about what types of state intervention or support are needed. And one is around how to provide the guardrails and the guidance and the information that enable good local decision-making. The other is um, putting in accountability mechanisms and oversight monitoring mechanisms so that if those things aren't happening locally, there is a clear trigger for what intervention looks like and, and how who pushes in to make sure that it does happen. So I think what's really critical here is identifying at the state level what kinds of spending are allowable here. What are the types of investments that advance the goals that we've set as a state? And what outcomes are expected from those investments? And helping districts to make connections between the two. So we don't want to get in the way of local control. But what we should be able to say in every single district is, I'm making this investment in high dosage tutoring or after school programming or mental health providers because I'm expecting to see this impact on students. And the way that I am going to know if that worked is by developing a measurement system, a way of understanding in my context if the investment that I made resulted in the types of change that I hoped that it would. On that note, I wanted to thank Heather Huff, Executive Director of Policy Analysis for California Education, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. For another view, we'll turn to an authority on school funding and accountability. We're fortunate to have with us John Effelt. John is Managing Attorney and Education Equity Director at the nonprofit law firm Public Advocates. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks, John. Uh, Glad to be here. You've been battling with districts for years, filing complaints over their failure to provide parents and the public with basic information on how they've been spending money for the highest needs students. So now we have upwards of $30 billion in federal and state funding for COVID relief. Are you concerned that the money will be spent well and that you'll know how it's spent? I'm both incredibly optimistic about this historic opportunity for the state to restart and reimagine schools after the pandemic and make them work better for students. And I think there is the opportunity to really do things differently. And at the same time, John, I'm concerned that there's so much money coming in that it could be a missed opportunity. And if we don't use this money effectively and transparently and engage local school communities in its use, then I think people are really going to have doubts about whether or not we should you know, be spending this much uh, money on, on um, public schools. There's now a big push for a number of new reforms to bring, as we bring kids back, to make up for the impact of the pandemic, rethinking schools, reimagining education, a lot, a lot of terms like that. Do you have a concern that some of these other reforms, they might be viewed as kind of old reforms, but really are not that old, uh, won't get brought back with the same kind of rigor or enthusiasm that folks like you had been advocating for and were backing? Well, I think the core 
aspects of the major reform we helped get passed in 2013, the local control funding formula, those core aspects are still absolutely relevant to the situation we're facing now. And, and that is heightened transparency on how funding is being used, increased community engagement in the decision-making for how those funds are used, and equitable spending, giving more to the neediest students and increasing and improving the, the services that those students are receiving. Um, and so I think, if anything, we need to make sure that this $30 billion that's coming into the system is going to be transparent, inclusive in decision-making, and equitably spent and used. So there are two systems, state and federal, John, and the state, as of June 1st, for $4.6 billion, is a form, a template, and, and districts are supposed to reach out to their community and find out how would you recommend that we spend this money. Are you optimistic that that's going to work, that we'll be able to track that money and the community will have actually a say, and then a say later on to see if it's working? Well, I think that it is a challenge given the tight time frame by you know June 1st to try to engage communities. But I think that is what should be happening. We're working with community groups to, to try to make that happen. And I think the bigger issue for us is this year's LCAP. This year's local control accountability plan really needs to be inclusive of all this money that is coming in. And we need to see how not just the state money is being spent, but there needs to be more uh, transparency around how these federal dollars are being spent. So a year ago, John, when the legislature passed the budget, they set some rudimentary requirements for what schooling should look like. But then there really was no enforcement mechanism to it. We don't really know how chronic absenteeism, what it looked like in districts. And there's no one looking over the district's shoulders to see, in fact, what happened. What do you recommend to the legislature now? Is another chance? Is a new budget coming up? Yeah, I think we actually were fairly successful in having the legislature set some decent standards for distance learning last year. Every child needed to be connected, provided social-emotional supports, tracked for learning loss and have their needs addressed, etc. But the state fell down, in my opinion, in not holding itself accountable for making sure any of that stuff happened at the district level. It really was, here are the standards, now go do it, and no one was looking over the district shoulders to actually make sure that they were implementing their plans effectively. And there were no consequences if you weren't. So I think we need to do better this time around and build in more oversight by county offices and the state to make sure that learning and social-emotional supports and the other things kids' needs are happening. And, and if they're not, that at least the, you know, in the worst-case scenarios, there is intervention and improvement in those districts. Thanks so much, John Affelt, for your perspectives on what's next for California schools. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me. 
So to get a district's perspective of school improvement in challenging times, we're pleased to have with us Sarah Noguchi, who is superintendent of Modesto City Schools. It's a K-12 district with about 30,000 students, about three quarters of whom are eligible for free and reduced lunches. Welcome, Superintendent. Thank you for having me. So we've been talking about the state accountability and school improvement system that it's been in limbo because of the pandemic. We're wondering how you're doing without a formal system from the state. Has there been any impact on you? Are you missing data that you need? Tell us what the status is in Modesto. I certainly can capitalize on really a larger school district. So we are 30,000. So we have a very large tech department. And insofar as the work that they've done, we really have built our own data dashboards over the last three years. So fortunately, we are able to determine which students are failing, if you will, or really have learning gaps. And we can break that down through you know, different grade levels, different ethnicities, and really work to build programs next year and in the summer to address those needs. Why did you feel the need to do that? My past experience was a math teacher for eight years. So the accountability systems and looking at data is something that I gravitate towards. So three years ago when I came to Modesto City, we began building the data dashboards and I, and I told the team, the tech team, I want it to mirror the state accountability dashboard so we can keep track on our own at how kids are doing as, as we move forward to ultimately feed the data into the state's dashboard. So we were in a very good position coming into COVID um, because we already had the dashboard. Although with COVID, we built a data dashboard so we could see how many kids were daily active, how many teachers were active, how many parents were active and engaging. And more importantly, how many of them actually connected with their teacher? Because you know, at the beginning of this pandemic, internet access was a big hurdle. And so this dashboard helped us. The whole goal of the dashboard, I mean, it was supposed to be very clear, visual representation of how schools are doing. What would somebody or parents or kids going onto your site see now? I mean, do you have anything like that so that people could keep track? And and really, it's also supposed to hold you accountable for progress. So our dashboards are all internal. So our principals and our counselors um, and administrators can see the data. We do not have at this point a forward-facing dashboard. That was supposed to happen last year and instead we worked with COVID and we were going to be working to build a data dashboard for outwardly facing this coming year. I am someone that is driven by data and so the data dashboards and the accountability, I do believe it's important to not leave kids behind. If there isn't an accountability system, schools could be left behind because no one's watching. Right. And so is the entire accountability system that the state has in the works effective for everyone? The answer is no. But I do think it's important to have an accountability system to hold everyone accountable. So no student is left behind and no school district or school is left behind. Looking ahead, are there things that we might do differently that you can see having been in the business as long as you've been and now having gone through a pandemic that may have changed your mind as to what we should measure? I can definitely say this pandemic has shifted my mindset. I have been driven by academics and data and and metrics and aligned to accountability, but not necessarily in the social, emotional and whole child. And I now think that that is more important than ever. In fact, I told my team this summer, I don't want the focus to be on academics and learning loss, which is a deficit. It's about engagement and 
excitement and motivation and, and teaching kids how to be back together again and and also working with our staff in that same same realm. So long answer to, I think we need to somehow figure out how to measure the social emotional health of not only our students, but our staff as well, because our staff is very challenged right now at the end of this year. Well, on that note, uh, I've been talking with Sarah Noguchi, superintendent of Modesto City Schools. Uh, thanks so much for talking with us today and, and for your important work in the Valley. Thank you, Lewis and John. It was great to be here. Before we go, we have to at least mention the extraordinary education initiative that President Biden announced this week. It's all wrapped up in the $1.8 trillion American Families Plan. Yes, Lewis, it includes an effort to add another four years to the education continuum, and this would include two years of preschool and two years of community college available to all Americans. They're calling it the cradle to college effort, and that's a familiar ring, isn't it, Lewis, to what California is offering? Well, absolutely. I mean, California has been moving in this direction, although, you know, it's sort of baby steps. Uh, We introduced transitional kindergarten a few years ago. It's just really available to four-year-olds who are born between September and December, and there's been expansion of preschool, but it's not really universally available yet even though Governor Newsom has made that a top priority. And at the other end, community colleges, we've always been exceptionally generous in terms of covering tuition for low-income students. And a majority of students, in fact, get tuition waivers. But it hasn't really reached all students yet. It's really up to the colleges to decide how they're going to spend that money. So uh, if these funds come through, and that's a big if, This could really help California build on what it is already doing and has wanted to do, in fact. I'm curious, Lewis, is there anything in a plan affecting teachers? Yes, a big chunk of the American Families Plan does have to do with teachers. And, you know, it's quite a lot of innovative ideas. I just have a feeling that Linda Darling-Hammond, our state board president, who also headed President Biden's education transition team, may have had a hand in this. But the plan, for example, doubles scholarship monies to teachers and teacher preparation programs from $4,000 to $8,000. It includes nearly $3 billion for grow your own teacher programs and teacher residency programs. And also, what seems really important, it calls for $2 billion for mentorship programs. That's to pay teachers to be mentors in their own schools and to really help teachers of color and teachers in these high-need schools cope with the demands and become better teachers. Well, it's a potpourri of uh, ideas, Lewis, but it will depend on Republican support. It's an expansion of the role of the federal government in this area, and it will be paid for with higher taxes. There's some resistance, as we know. So, you know, we'll see what happens. At least it points us in the right direction, it would be extraordinary to have that kind of collaboration between the federal government and what we are trying to do here in California. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thank you, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and its source's own Justin Allen. Please let us know what you think of our podcasts. You can send a note to edsource at edsource.org. We'd really like to hear from you. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. Stay well. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.